0: Live from New York at the Chainalysis Links Conference, this is Public Key, and I'm your host, Ian Andrews. This is the second episode of a series that will air over the next month. And this series is brought to you by our friends at Deloitte, who are the official sponsor of Live From Links. Cybersecurity is perhaps the biggest threat to the crypto industry. It seems like there are very few days recently where there isn't news of a protocol hack, a smart contract vulnerability, or some new phishing scheme. And while the attackers are only getting more sophisticated, there are new and vulnerable users who are entering web three every day. Luckily, there's some really smart folks dedicated to building secure systems and protecting those users. In this episode, I'm joined by one of the good guys, Philip Martin, who is Chief Security Officer at Coinbase. Philip takes us back to the early days of Coinbase and how he and CEO Brian Armstrong prioritized security from the beginning and made it a differentiating feature of the exchange platform. Philip also shares his rubber ducky method to protect yourself from falling victim to financial scams. It sounds funny, but I am fully bought in. We also get into some of the cutting-edge innovation that Coinbase is driving, like the MPC tech behind their Coinbase wallet product. And as you listen to this episode, we've just wrapped Lynx in New York. And if you weren't able to intend in person, I want you to book your plans for Lynx Amsterdam, which is happening May 9th and 10th. Registration is now open, and the link can be found in the show notes.
1: On this episode, I'm joined by Philip Martin, Coinbase Chief Security Officer. Philip, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me
1: chief security officer at Coinbase. That sounds like a gigantic role. Mm -hmm. What what are you actually responsible for?
2: So I own cybersecurity, physical security, privacy, governance, risk, and compliance for technology, and a couple other little areas, business continuity, disaster recovery, some other stuff like that. I'm imagining you're pretty busy guy. Sometimes, but I also have a great team. I, of course, just came from the the main stage doing a talk, and one of the questions that I was asked there was, how do you sleep at night? And my answer is, I sleep like a baby because, I have a great team of people who are focused on their areas, who understand the intent, who know how to execute. And so my day-to-day, I'm not generally in the trenches doing like tactically solving problems, or if I am, they're pretty significant problems. And so yeah, it's a big job, but it's a big team. I
1: uh, was recently having a conversation with our CEO, Michael Browninger. Mm -hmm. so I'm a relative newcomer to the crypto space about two years in. He obviously was working on Bitcoin client code back in 2011. Mm And so I will frequently, when something crazy happens in crypto, I'll go to him and be like, I need a little perspective, Michael. And last year was sort of the year of DeFi hacks. And we mm-hmm. saw billions of dollars exfiltrated from the DeFi ecosystem. And I'm like, wow, this seems like such a threat to... And and Michael's point back to me was like, well, there was once upon a time where that was happening to centralized exchanges. Yep. And I definitely haven't seen any headlines about Coinbase yeah. suffering a cyber attack. So...
2: Congratulations. Thank you. appreciate that. But
1: I imagine this didn't happen overnight. You've been there for a while. Talk about kind of the evolution of how you think about cyber defense and protecting all the assets of your customers. How's that evolved over
2: time? It's a great question. So I've been at Coinbase. It'll actually be seven years next week. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, It's been great to see both the space and the company itself evolve. Like the crazy thing to think about, right? When I joined Coinbase, we were Bitcoin only essentially a wallet with an exchange. Yeah. That, that's it. That was the entirety of the company, a hundred people. And the great thing about it though, is that starting from that foundation, even when I joined, right? When I talked to Brian, our CEO, he would tell stories about, you know, the very early days of Coinbase, right? Where it was like him and a few other people, yeah. and seeing the, the attacks come into the site in real time. And really that experience left him with a deep appreciation for, Security, of the platform, and he has.
1: You couldn't ask for more as a chief security officer, as a CEO who exactly understands How viscerally understands yeah.
2: and has that feeling of like the the responsibility to protect what our customers have given us. Yeah, and and that really makes my job much easier. I say a lot that most of my peers, most like like CISOs or CSOs out there, have the conversation why security a lot, and it's an important conversation to have. I almost never have to have that conversation. The question is not why security, it's how security. That's an important conversation too. What are the trade-offs? How do we balance equities? You got it, right? But no one's questioning the, the foundation of why we should invest in this thing. Yeah. And so really what that means is that the compounding interest on those investments over the last seven years, really 10 years since the company was founded, really, really pays off. When you make the right decisions early, when you bolt on security to an existing product, it's sort of like you want to build a safe, right? So you buy a really great safe door and like install it. But then right over here, there's just a drywall wall, <laughs> right? That like, if you get a good running start, you could probably run through. That's what bolted on security looks and feels like instead of doing it right from the beginning, from the foundation up, from pouring the concrete walls to the right kind of rebar the whole thing. And so that's what we've been able to do at Coinbase from the very, very beginning is take the right approach to having an architecture that lends itself to being defended. And to do that with the very real specter of attacks in the space, even if we wanted to forget about security, which we don't, we would be daily reminded that security breaches happen around the world on a regular basis, and, and we need to be mindful lest we become part of that list.
1: And the product hasn't stood still. No, this is like you talk about this idea of well, oh, we started out with the concrete bunker, mm-hmm. rebar reinforced walls, but you've added on to the house a couple of times. We have, like, I think about Coinbase Wallet, the latest generation. It's a pretty incredible implementation in terms of this multi-party computation mm-hmm. for ease of use. I think for the end yeah, user, that's but a layer of security sure. that it doesn't trivialize the asset. Yep. Talk a little bit about how that came about. Like, how did your organization think about that new feature Code? Because that's a big open attack surface area, I would have to imagine. Like, it extends yeah. outside of your bunker.
2: Sure. <laughs> Maybe just, just to just beat the bunker analogy to death a little bit here. The trick to expanding that product bunker is not that you build the bunker and then you build the house on top. It's yeah. that you build the bunker and then you build the tools to build the bunker. So future bunker expansion is easy, right? So you build the preformed wall slabs, you, you you invest in the rebar tying tools, like you build your capability to execute within that same construct. And that's what Coinbase has done. So the NPC is a great example, where back in, I'm going to call it 2018, where we had just shipped a major update to our cold storage engine in the background, which is the same thing that powers Coinbase customers. And we were very happy about that, but when we get happy about something, we, we want to ask what's next, right? Yeah. So we asked them, what's next? Like, what is the next evolution of private key storage in the space? And we were looking around and we started reading about multi-party computation, which at the time it was out there, but it wasn't like really far out there. It wasn't nearly as common as it is today. It was
1: more in academic white papers. It was academic white
2: papers. And, and so well, I'll tell you, the moment we actually started looking at it seriously is I was at a conference called Real World Crypto, um, which just happened this year in Tokyo. I didn't get to go unfortunately. And I saw a talk on, on multi-party computation and started thinking about its implications in, in our context, in the context of private key management. And it became very clear that like this is a very new technology, but something we needed to learn a lot about. It goes back to building the tools to build them. So we went on probably an eighteen-month odyssey uh, within security, trying to figure out okay, this seems interesting, but like some more about it. What are its applications? What are its downsides? What are, what are the problems or the gotchas? And you know, fast forward a few years from there, I think it was late twenty twenty, we acquired Unbound, a company in Israel, specializing in technology, and really accelerated multi-party computation efforts a- as a product within Coinbase into DAP wallet, which was the first place we rolled it out at a public-facing sense. And I think you're going to see multi-party computation in more places, both both behind the scenes and in even user-facing roles, because exactly what you said, it is a technology that can be used to simplify the problem for consumers. It's awesome to see that. One of the things that I you know, you touch on
1: consumers, and I think one of the biggest challenges right now in the crypto mm-hmm. is the amount of, kind of scam and phishing activity mm-hmm. that is happening across the. Like my own personal experience, I look at my Twitter timeline and I get tagged sure. in 50 a day, tweets, fake airdrop, you know, and they're trying to use me with a few thousand followers to yep. promote their thing. They're not very good at Twitter. I mean, that's why they're tagging me on these things.
2: It's numbers but, game, man. It's numbers game. Yeah, I guess
1: so. I guess so. But even that low level of like not sophisticated scam activity seems to be pervasive. And so Coinbase, you know, again, not, not getting hacked directly, but... I would imagine Coinbase consumers off platform mm-hmm. are constantly being targeted. How do you think about that as CISO? Like, are you extending all the way out to the customer perimeter? Because that yeah, I think sure. implies like a lot of infrastructure you can't control or, yes. or design Absolutely. or select, right? It's like, it's the wild west of my iPhone environment.
2: So yes, uh, we have a team within security called trust and safety. That is, that is, is sort of what it says on the box. Is focused on that, on that consumer trust and safety bit. And there's a bunch to unpack in, in what you're saying. Well, I'll just I'll just yeah. pick on a few things yeah. in particular. The one is scams coming. and go. Scammers are are highly innovative and they have been for thousands of years, right? Yeah. Since value was transferred among humans, I, I'm gonna <laughs> guess. The first chicken changed hands, and then a scammer showed up. <laughs> is, is like I'm gonna guess that was about the sequence of events, yeah. right? Yeah. They've shown to be to be durably innovative. Over over the Absolutely. years over the centuries, and so the individual scams, right, they come and go. Yeah. We are really focused on is how do we make consumers more resistant to scams writ large? Yeah. We have to, of course, we have to engage with with the scam of the day, which today is, of course, the Pigeon Yeah, but it's it's more about how do we give consumers, not just Coinbase consumers, like really consumers writ large, yeah. the skills and abilities to exist safely in this online world, this online by what. The key element of this online world is velocity, right? Things happen fast on the internet. We all learned growing up, when we go on vacation, put your lights on a timer, stop the newspaper delivery. We all learned, don't walk down dark alley, don't count your money in public, right? We learned all these skills to be safe in the physical world. No one at my kitchen table, I'm gonna bet your kitchen table too, told me about password safety, about two-factor authentication use, about scam resistance online. We, yeah. just, we just didn't learn these yeah. things. I have
1: three young kids and I'm trying to explain those good, concepts good, to good. them.
2: And like, it's not me. <laughs> you know what? It, well, neither did the physical stuff that, the first true. time that's you true. heard it, right? That's it's true. a repetition game. And so you're doing the right thing. And I hope people are doing more and more of this is, is giving people those skills and abilities. But the reality is right now what we have is a whole ecosystem of internet users who have not learned the same skill sets that as users of crypto you and i take a little bit for granted now because we've learned it through hard experience either ours or those we've seen my mission then uh, on the trusted safety side is how do we help those people build those skills so that they can be safe consumers of not just cryptocurrency but an increasingly online world because without them people are going to fall prey to scams that move like that on the internet. You mentioned pig military. Yeah. So we've had a couple of guests
1: on the talk on that topic We've had Alistair McCready who's mm-hmm. the editor for Southeast Asia for Vice News.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he's done some incredible investigative reporting yep. into the industrial scale operation behind these scams. Yeah. More recently, we had two district attorneys, mm-hmm. uh, Alona Katz from Manhattan and Aaron West from Santa Francisco county who are on the front lines of victims yeah. and doing some amazing work to, to try and help people recover funds and shut some of this down. When you think about pig butchering in the context of all the threats that you're dealing with, like where does that sit today and, yeah. and how, how are you trying to tackle
2: that? So pig butchering is an interesting problem. The reason it is interesting is because it's a multi-platform problem. Interrupting for one
0: moment before Philip jumps in with his perspective on pig butchering, I wanted us to listen to a clip from his main stage talk at Lynx where he explains the scammer's modus operandi.
2: I pay a lot of attention to how our attackers evolve in general. This is a very trite saying, right? But no one's gonna teach you like your attackers will. No one one will show you where you need to grow and develop and do better as well or as thoroughly as an attacker. And so I pay a lot of attention to how how our attackers moving, how are they evolving, how are they growing. In particular, attackers are like anyone else who innovates, right? They try a bunch of stuff. A lot of it fails. A lot of it's not good, goes away. And they'll double down on what works. And so when we see things like pig butchering become more widespread in general, we sit up and pay attention and ask ourselves, you know, what can we do? Wow. You are hearing from somebody who has clearly been dealing with crypto related scams
0: since the early days of Coinbase over a decade ago. And now back to the podcast.
2: So what does Coinbase see when a pig butchering scam works? Well, we see the very end thing. We see A person sign up or log into their account and move money. Now maybe that money is going to a scam address that we can tag and we can stop the transaction, but maybe it's going to a brand new address that we've never seen before. That looks like everyone else doing their day-to-day thing because we see the very end slice of it. Now you go to the very beginning. What does Match.com see or Tinder where all these initial interactions are happening? Well, they see two people matching and taking a conversation to a third platform, a WhatsApp, a telegram, whatever. Nothing's necessarily suspicious about that, right? right, right? And yeah. then on, on in the middle, what do we see? Well, well WhatsApp doesn't see anything, yeah. but maybe they maybe they see a certain phone number uh, is associated with a pig butchering. scams reported by somebody. Okay, they can play whack-a-mole with those, yeah. but that's not gonna get you very far, very fast. And so each piece of the puzzle in isolation is very difficult for any of these platforms to action, because yep. the, the activity looks relatively normal. It's only when you start stitching it together that you get the picture of the scan. And so I think that's what makes this particularly difficult for any one platform to solve, is that none of us are seeing, or that none of us that can see it, WhatsApp can't introspect that or say that. Whatever, yeah. None of us that can see it are seeing enough of it to durably say pig butchering, consistently every single time. And so. If it's a multi-platform problem, it's a multi-platform solution. The future of working against pig butchering is, number one, working with law enforcement that does have the, the remit to, to cross platforms in this way, right? The, they have the ability to open investigations, to the subpoena data, to, to really put the picture together. It's very, very important here. But also to make sure that... Each platform is thinking hard about like, okay, great. We don't have a full picture, but what can we see? What indications can we come up with? Are there certain ways that these things, the transactions work or certain behavioral differences that we can, that we can tease out here that we can even make the problem 1% better. I think that's, that's an important piece here. It,
1: it seems like such an important problem to solve. I mean, it's hard to get a, a really great estimate on yeah. the scale of these operations, because like you said, it's this multi platform. You're not seeing all the funds flow consistently through one set of addresses. But a number of people have suggested to I me mean, this is billions of dollars that is flowing out of victims' wallets mm-hmm. into the which is a staggering amount of
2: money. The specific details of pig butchering, right, are, are almost immaterial because pig butchering is just a confidence scam. It's a specific right. implementation of a confidence scam. That's right. Even if we shut it down, there'll be another confidence scam that shows up later. The thing we have to fix in addition to investing in how do we warn people, how do we how do we spot the signs, how do we make it harder, how do we fix the geopolitics of it, right? There's a bunch of stuff to fix. But if we fix all that, all we're doing is is telling the attackers, okay, that game's done. Next So the ultimate fix here is educated consumers. So I, I said something on, on the main stage, I'm gonna repeat it here. It's the most useful suggestion I have to get to an educated consumer. And it is it is this. So sometimes you're you're talking to somebody, maybe maybe it's the parents, maybe it's you know friends, whatever. And, and, and you want to tell them, you know, how to be careful online, how to not get stuck. You're gonna give them a bunch of specific advice, maybe they're listening, maybe they're not, maybe they're paying attention, maybe they don't care. Or maybe the scammer is gonna like, is going to uh, overcome those situations. What you need to give them though, is you need to give them a rubber duck. Tell them, when you're about to make a financial decision, what I want you to do is take the rubber ducky, put it on your desk, stare that rubber ducky, straight in the eyes, and explain what you're about to do out loud that rubber ducky. If you feel like that rubber ducky is judging you, the thing you're about to do is probably not what you should be doing and you need to call somebody and talk to them.
1: That's incredible. I love this. Input.
2: So this this comes from this, this concept in computer science called rubber, rubber ducky debugging, right? Which is which is very similar, right? You're solving a problem, it's just not working and you're like, ah, because you're so involved in it, right? Yeah. What the rubber ducky does is it takes you out of yeah. the problem a little
1: bit, yeah.
2: right? And you have to think about what you're doing. You're, you're out of the urgency which is what scammers create. You're out of the urgency. You explain the problem. And then frequently that gives you the perspective to see the thing for what it is, Yeah. which is really what we want to do. We want them, the, the, the potential victim to take a step back, see the situation for what it is. Right. Oh, someone that randomly messaged me out of the blue is asking that I send this money to this place to do this thing I've never heard of. But like, hmm, that doesn't sound right. That's the best suggestion I have.
1: That, that's amazing. You mentioned, you called the Coinbase wallet earlier, the was. The
2: so there's two different products, just oh, to be clear. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So so the Coinbase, the Coinbase wallet, right, is literally the Coinbase wallet. You download that as a separate app. DAP wallet is actually part of the Coinbase retail app, right? And so DAP wallet uses MPC behind the scenes to deliver part of the service for you, specifically with interfacing with Dapps. Thank you for clarifying. So where I was going
1: with this was, you're obviously recognizing the interest of your customers mm-hmm. to move crypto from within the Coinbase custody of the structure off to DeFi. Like yep. DeFi has been one of the you know, biggest growing areas of crypto, certainly and finance over all the last few years. I have to imagine a security professional that terrified. Like DeFi feels like the wild west in terms mm-hmm. of the the hacks that occur and smart contract vulnerabilities, infrastructure risks, particularly certainly about bridging assets across ecosystems. Mm-hmm. Any advice for consumers who are going down that path like in terms of how they're approaching So less the confidence scam, but more the like, how do I know this lending, borrowing protocol, or this DEX that I'm gonna go use is is actually
2: safe before I connect my wallet and get to that That's a great question. And unfortunately also an unanswerable question because I don't. Without doing a lot of work upfront, right? Without actually going and looking at the code and spending a considerable amount of time understanding the interactions, the various pieces, and then keeping up with that after the fact and future updates, I don't expect anyone to, to understand that. But here's the interesting thing. This question, I think, hits a little bit different post sort of SVB and, and signature. But like, can you ask the same question about a bank? But the reality is we don't ask the yeah. questions to banks. So why not? Maybe the answer is we should, more. but yeah. the reason we don't is because there's there's this history of regulators building regulations, of banks complying with them, and then like banks that operate not losing consumer funds yeah. or when at risk being backstopped by. FDIC. And so and so we don't ask the question about like, okay, well, how is this bank investing? What is their uh, health maturity versus available for sale? How, what does the mix look like? And I think the reason we ask this about DeFi, not about a bank is number one, there are more risks in DeFi today. But I think we are moving toward a world of, of more standards where we can put faith in standards and the application of those standards. And that's how we're truly going to get consumers to a place where they can make reasonable choices about where their, their funds should go. Now, now very tactically, you're a consumer, you're, you have a choice between three different loan DeFi protocols, and you wanna use one of them, which one do you use? I think what I would do, if it's, if it's me wanting to do this, is I would look at some of the basic signs I would look at for any business. I would look at, well, what's their history point? How long have they been around? How much money has moved through it historically? If it was gonna be a rug pull, whether they have already pulled. What I know about the founding team—are they—are they anonymous? Are they not anonymous? Are, are they in a, in a high rule of law country, so we they affect consequences if there's do something wrong? The same sort of stuff I might do for any business. I, I would do for a DMAT Protocol, yeah. like if we're into like the very tactical.
1: No, I think that's great advice. Like you can reputation that—not they'll just deep into the thing. Friend told you about and claimed you made a or, ton
2: of money, or if you do so, right? Like, look, I'm a security guy, so like, I'm going to come with I have a particular view on the world. Yeah. But like, my view on the world is it's all risk, not in a bad way, not like yeah. everything is risky. It's all risk, right? Yeah. And so, but how much risk can you afford to take with that? You know, thing that your friend told you about?
1: Yeah,
2: five, 10, 50 bucks in there, sure, no problem, right? It's not going to hurt much. if I lose it. Five thousand, fifty thousand, five hundred thousand. Yeah, uh, I'm going to be very sad. I'm going to be. I'm well. going to be very sad, right? And so, my diligence level should approach my sadness level yeah like the potential sadness potential diligence like that that should be on the same approximate level let's end on a high note yeah
1: so as you look forward in the future as far as you can see into the crypto crystal ball yeah. what gets
2: you really excited rather than what are you worried about i'm sure you get the worrying about question from everybody <laughs> totally to the security guy but what are you excited about i'm excited about the fact that i have no idea what's going on. go back to like you know early days of the internet the critique at the time was like, this is just a catalog but on a computer. So like, why would I do this? And they were right, that's what it was. In high school, ran a small business building websites. And I, I will tell you, I built catalogs on the internet. It was boring. So could I, high schooler Philip back in the day, predicted where, where no, of course not, not even. Where I I'm sure there are very smart people who, who could have and probably did do so at the time. I don't know what's coming in cryptocurrency and blockchain over the next, call it five, 10 years, but I'm kind of excited for what's gonna be. Well, that's a great place to end, Philip. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Hey there, thanks
0: for listening to a special Live from Links episode of Public Key. This is the second episode of a series that will air over the next month. And that series is brought to you by our friends at Deloitte, the official sponsor of Live from Links. After listening to such a powerful episode from Lynx NYC, you are probably wondering what else you missed at this historic event. Don't worry, the Chainalysis team has compiled the best snippets from regulators, law enforcement, journalists, and industry executives in our recent blog posts titled Lessons from Links. In it, we highlight how to safely grow the crypto industry while still fostering innovation. If you want to know how this ecosystem will thrive while providing a safe environment for consumers, head to the show notes, find the link to the blog, and enjoy the read.